Good afternoon and welcome to Africa.com's Crisis Management for African Business Leaders. My name is Soko Sibia and I'm the Senior News Editor of Africa.com based in Johannesburg. Thank you for joining Africa.com's 14th webinar in this series, Crisis Management for African Business Leaders, developed in partnership with faculty from Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School. And now please welcome the, our host, Teresa Clark, Africa.com's Chair and CEO. Thank you very much, Soku. Well, I start as always by thanking our lead sponsor, Standard Bank, who makes these webinars, these webinars possible. Thank you for your ongoing collaboration and for your partnership. I'd also like to thank the faculty of Harvard Business School and Harvard Law School who work with us to deliver topical content with academic rigor. I'd like to highlight that two of our faculty members have collaborated with one another to launch an online course that should be of great interest to this audience. Professors Tarun Khanna and Carolyn Elkins of Harvard Business School are launching Africa Live, an entrepreneurship in emerging economies. This course will teach entrepreneurs how to build scalable businesses designed to solve core problems in Africa. Unlike other business courses, this one focuses on identifying points of opportunity for smart entrepreneurs and smart entrepreneurial efforts through live online lectures, peer-to-peer -peer counseling, peer-to-peer -peer learning, and real-life lessons incorporated into participants' own business plans. The online course starts on August 17th, and participants will earn a certificate from Harvard University. Please visit our conference website, virtualconferenceafrica.com, to learn more about this exciting course. And we hope that many of you will share it with others, particularly as many young people around the world are not going back to school. This is a fantastic opportunity to engage with Harvard University and earn a certificate. So we strongly um, encourage you to support this program and congratulate Tarun and Carolyn uh, for launching this dynamic course. Because of who our speakers are today, we'd like to welcome a number of new webinar participants from Francophone Africa, Cameroon in particular. You're joining the largest ever gathering of C-suite executives in Africa. We are a webinar community of African business leaders from 125 countries, including 46 countries on the African continent and 79 countries around the world. We've just added two recently as well, so we're quite excited about that. We've had our first registrants from China and from Antarctica. Our goal is to create dialogue, share knowledge, and explore solutions that contribute to Africa's resilience and recovery from the current set of crises, economic and humanitarian. I'll now introduce our distinguished panel for today. Interestingly, all three are on the just published list of Jeune Afrique's most influential Africans list. Thank you, Acha, for pointing that out to us. And coincidentally, as you pointed out, all three today are from Cameroon. We didn't plan this. We just dreamt about our dream team panel to tackle today's issue. And by chance, we learned that they, after they had all accepted, that all three are Cameroonian and all three also happen to hold doctorate degrees. So we are in very good hands as we explore this topic today. The first speaker will be Dr. John Nkengasong. Um, John, if I may call you that, is the director of the Africa Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Uh, prior to his current position, he served as the acting deputy principal director of the Center for Global Health in the United States Center for Disease Control and Prevention, the US CDC, and the chief international laboratory branch division of global HIV and tuberculosis. 
Dr. Nkinga Sun serves on several international advisory boards, including the Coalition for Epidemic Preparedness Initiative, CEPI as it's called, CEPI, the International AIDS Vaccine Initiative, among many others. He has authored over 250 peer-reviewed articles in international journals and published several book chapters. Thank you very much, Dr. Nkinga Sun. Our second speaker today is Dr. Vera Songwe. Vera, as I hope to call her, is the UN Undersecretary General and the ninth Executive Secretary of the Economic Commission for Africa, becoming the first woman to lead the institution in its 60-year history. As Executive Secretary, Vera reforms focusing on ideas for a prosperous Africa um, have brought to the fore critical issues of macroeconomic stability, development finance, private sector growth, poverty and inequality, the digital transformation trade and competitiveness. Dr. Sangwe was recently listed as one of Africa's 50 most powerful women by Forbes, named as one of the 100 most influential Africans, as we mentioned by Jeune Afrique a couple of years in a row, 100 most influential Africans by the New African Magazine in 2017, and one of the 25 Africans to watch by the Financial Times in 2015. Sangwe is acknowledged for her longstanding track record of providing policy advice and her wealth of experience in delivering development results for Africa. Thank you, Vera. It's very nice to have you on our platform. We've been trying to make this happen for you and for John, actually, for several weeks. So we're very pleased to have both of you here. Um, Acha, you happen to have the, for the award as the first speaker on the Africa.com webinar platform to come back twice. And so we are very happy to welcome back Dr. Acha Leke, who is a senior partner in McKinsey's Johannesburg office, and he is the chairman of McKinsey's Africa practice. Acha transferred back, and I should say Dr. Acha Leke, um, he transferred back to Johannesburg in 2002 to help expand McKinsey's activities across Sub-Saharan Africa. He then relocated to Lagos in 2010 to open the newly established office for McKinsey in Nigeria, and he returned to South Africa in 2014. He leads the firm's private equity and principal investors practice in Africa and is a member of the McKinsey Global Institute Council. Acha serves governments, multinational organizations, and private sector institutions across Africa on issues of economic development, tax administration, growth strategies, holistic transformations, and investment decisions. He's worked across more than 20 African countries to date. So uh, the schedule for today is that each of our speakers will speak for seven minutes. John will start by leading us in a review of where we are with the pandemic from a public health standpoint. Then Acha and Vera will each give an update on their views on what Africa should be doing from an economic strategy perspective. I should mention that both Acha and Vera are very well renowned for their lockdown exit strategies that they both published in May. And when we thought about this topic of what now as we enter August, how should this economic thinking be um, advanced? We couldn't think of two better people than Acha and Vera to be able to take us through what they were saying in May and how that's changing now based on what John is going to be telling us about how the pandemic is taking hold in Africa at this moment. So we then hope that Acha and Vera will get into some dialogue about those strategies. We will have a poll and we will do some Q&A. So with that, I would like to introduce Dr. John Ikingasong. John, may I turn it over to you, please? So thank you and uh, again for the opportunity to be a part of this conversation. And Maybe perhaps I will start by apologizing to Vera that uh, she has been seeing these uh, slides uh, in the previous webinar she and I were uh, multiple times. So um, 
So just very quickly, to uh, just focus here on the numbers at the bottom of this slide, which shows that the world now has reported or recorded over 16 million cases of COVID-19, of which about 645,000 have unfortunately died, uh, resulting to a case fatality rate of about 4%. Uh, 4, 4 Next slide. If you now look at the continent, very carefully, uh, this slide tells a, a very uh, um, disturbing story. First of all, let me walk you through the colors. The, the dark colors represent the, the evolving situation of COVID-19 in West Africa, the gray in Southern Africa, and then as you move on uh, to the green in um, Central Africa. But what you should be looking at carefully here is the red line, as uh, it indicates the, what we call the moving average on the continent over the last uh, couple of weeks, just the last week. And it shows an overall increase of 15%, uh, resulting to about 870,000 cases of COVID infection, uh, of which 18,000 have died uh, with a case fatality rate of about 2.1%. Very, very fortunately, and we need to always remember this, is that 520,000 individuals who are infected have recovered, representing about 60% of people that have recovered. Next slide. I share this slide uh, to uh, illustrate the distribution of COVID-19 cases by country. But the most important message here is the top, which says 36 countries with less than 5,000 cases. This to me is a hopeful message from a public health standpoint, which says that we still have a very good chance of uh, fighting back this pandemic on the continent if we do the right things, which is expand the, the testing, the contact tracing, and the treatment. And seven countries are, are reporting between 5,000 to 10,000 cases there. So I think we have not yet over, been overwhelmed by this pandemic. We really uh, should focus our attention on how to collectively and collaboratively fight this fight. And I usually say this is not time uh, to panic, but it's time to uh, face the facts and, and not fear. In terms of testing, the continent is making good progress. As of today, we've tested about 8.3 million people, or rather conducted 8.3 million tests, resulting to a, case, a test per case ratio of about 9.5, with a positivity rate of 10%. If you see where we were in April, when we launched the partnership uh, to accelerate COVID testing called PACT, uh, our numbers were very low. We were testing about 300, we had tested about 350,000 people. So we are in the right direction, but where should we be? We should be testing about 13 million uh, people per month if, because we are a continent of 1.3 billion people. So we have a joint continental strategy that was endorsed uh, by the Bureau of the Head of States on March 26, and has several working groups, which are, are illustrated on the right-hand side of this slide. Next slide. And in terms of uh, that, those working groups, we've issued several guidance from the Africa CDC, including that related to this topic, which is guidance on easing of the lockdown, which we strongly encourage our countries to look at as we prepare to uh, unlock our economies. Next slide. So let me conclude then with uh, uh, some key messages that as we unlock our economies and ease the lockdown, which is absolutely what we should be doing, we have to join our forces and commit ourselves to a campaign of saving lives and saving the economies. 
which should be centered around five key things. First is to commit ourselves to scaling up testing and contact tracing, increase border, uh, cross-border testing, engage our communities because the solution will come from the community and build that trust and leadership with the community, increase our surveillance in order to detect hotspots, and lastly, enforce public use of masks. And together, we are very hopeful that we still have a chance to beat back this infection. Thank you. Thank you very much, John. And we're going to go now from you to Dr. Vera Songway. Vera? No, um, thank you. Thank you very much, John. I think um, I take uh, two things from what uh, John has presented uh, uh, today. One is a, a hopeful and positive message um, that, you know, we have uh, quite a number of our countries that are still under the 5,000 number. I think you said 40 uh, uh, below uh, 5,000 cases. So that means we can beat this uh, uh, virus, and I'm sure that we could. The other thing is um, the, the whole issue of what happens where we talk about lockdowns, but behind lockdowns, we actually have people, we have businesses, we have small and medium enterprises that today are seeing themselves impossible to find their clients and impossible to continue doing business. And we've done some work and just to sort of step back and, and give you some numbers on, and one of the reasons I, I think, uh, and say hello to John and Achara, the Cameroonian uh, combination here before I continue. Um, we've done a lot of work that shows that, you know, Africa's GDP is going to go down to, you know, uh, 0%. We were growing at 3.2%. At 3.2% with the population growth rate of about 2.9, we were not really growing that fast. But in uh, parts of our continent, like East Africa, we had 6 8% growth, which meant that we were actually reducing the number of poor people that we had. Now, what has happened with COVID? With COVID, a lot of our small businesses, 70% of Africa's business, 70% of Africa's unemployed people work in small and medium enterprises. And what we see is that the small and medium enterprises today show capacity utilization rates, which are quite low, which essentially means that, particularly for our micro enterprises, they're only operating at 50% capacity. For medium enterprises, 50% capacity, and for larger enterprises, 60% capacity. Why is this? Two reasons. One, we cannot reach our uh, clients. And so therefore, you know, either your shop is closed and they cannot come to meet you. That brings us to the second, I think, piece of good news that we have on the continent, which is that our governments are beginning to realize that internet connectivity, tele uh, uh, ensuring that we have broadband access, ensuring that we can actually communicate better through technology has become something that we used to talk about and we used to congratulate ourselves about the fact that Africa had all these mobile phones. But most of our mobile phones were not uh, 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 um, uh, enabled to sort of go on the internet and so they're not smartphones. And so only 36% of the continent actually had smartphones. And I think this realization had not really met with our leaders. And what we need now to do is move from the 85% that do have mobile phones, but which is sort of non-Android phones, and make sure that we go from the 36% that have smartphones to 85%. We have 714 million people today with mobile phones on the continent, but only about 150 with smartphones. We just came from a conversation uh, uh, before we joined this one, talking about how we go back to school. And when you talk about going back to school, we have almost uh, 30 million kids out there that need to go back to school. But as uh, uh, John showed us, 
we are not yet out of the crisis. On the continent, the crisis is still going up. We're still having contamination. So we cannot open our schools and we'll need to use technology. And my sense is that as technology companies are doing well in the rest of the world, we will begin to see better movement in new startups that are beginning to develop the young and innovative kids from Senegal to South Africa, to Ghana, to Kenya, that are developing new devices to communicate. So while traditional small SMEs are not doing as well as we would have wanted, we see huge opportunity in the technology space, the technology trading space. And I must say that yesterday I participated in a meeting relaunching the conversation of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. And this is for me, the other big positive of this conversation is that if ever there was a moment when Africa came together and said, we must do the AFCFTA, it's now. Because when we did our study, we realized that when COVID hit, 54 countries across the world closed their borders, closed their borders to exports of food. So India said, no more rice getting out of my country. Vietnam said, no more rice, I have to keep it for my people. The European Union, where Africa buys 55% of its pharmaceutical products, said no more COVID-related pharmaceutical products will leave Europe until we have enough. And we know that most countries did not have enough and will not have enough for a long time. So one of the other positives, and I'm giving you a lot of positives because I really want us not to see COVID as this, you know, pandemic that is going to forever make us incapable of doing anything. But we got together with AfriExim Bank and we decided, can we stand up African co uh, companies? And we were able to get almost 150 African companies that decided we will switch production processes and we will do ventilators in South Africa, in Morocco. We will do medical test kits in Ghana, in Kenya, in Senegal. We will do PPEs, of course, across the continent, women businesses are doing PPEs. And I think this is the positive story that we can take off. But now what do we do? We need access to financing. We need more resources. That takes us to the bigger picture. Our ministers of finance have come together and asked for $100 million in additional financing. There is a big debate out there about debt. And I want us to be very clear about what debt is. All countries create debt. So the question is not about whether Africa is getting more debt. The question is about whether if Africa is getting that debt to ensure that we can produce ventilators on the continent, to ensure that we can produce masks in Morocco that we sell to Europe, and create jobs on the continent. We had before COVID, 13 million jobs we needed to create a year. With COVID, 40 million more people unemployed. If we can take that debt to stand up energy factories, to ensure that factory life continues and we can keep more jobs, then we have to do that. But we cannot take the debt if we are going to be doing things that are not transparent, where there is poor governance in the utilization of it. We need the debt. We just came out from a meeting again with education ministers. If we want to send kids back to school, we're going to ensure, we need to ensure that they're safe distancing, which means they cannot all go to school at the same time, which means we need to hire more teachers. So we create jobs, but we need to pay more teachers. So we need more resources. So I think that when we talk about debt, we need to go beyond, particularly as Africans, but in general, as a global community that is being hit by a global pandemic, we need to talk about it in terms of what is the rate of return 
for not taking that and how can we use it more effectively to ensure that uh, we can actually respond to this crisis. So I think when we did our study of lockdowns, we showed that Africa loses about 2.5% of its GDP. We had 42 countries that went on lockdown. Yesterday or two days ago, we heard from Kenya, they may be going back into lockdown because we've not been able to sort of, you know, community transmission has propagated. How can we stop that? We need to ensure that there is better policing, better testing. We need to get to the 10 to 10,000. And I think again, the African Medical Supplies Platform can ensure that we do that in a way that does not cost too much to our budgets, because we always come back to the budgets. I think we're seeing the European Union just gave itself $750 billion of stimulus. The United States is thinking of reissuing checks uh, for people who are unemployed, 40 million of them. It is the same on the continent. I think we need to come together uh, to see how we do that. And finally, the last thing I would say about this crisis, which makes me even more positive, is just how we have seen collaboration between the private sector. Um, I talked about technology. We had the largest te telecom companies on the continent come together to work with us to reach the 714 million people, uh, NGOs and civil society that are working on governance to ensure that in places like Kibera, the resources get to where they need to get to so that everybody has uh, uh, something that they can live on. So I think if we can continue this collaboration, of course, all under the leadership of President Ramaphosa and the African Union and John, who is doing a fantastic job on the health side, I must say, to ensure that the continent stays open and continues to, to work, has been, I think, for us uh, a, a, a huge shock to the continent, but we can learn from it and we can build back so much better, so much stronger, I think with everything that uh, each and every one of us Africans has been able to do. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Vera, for those very inspiring remarks, not something that everyone was expecting today. So it's nice to hear you focus on the positive because I guess the glass is always partially full. And thank you for helping us to appreciate what opportunities there are in this moment. Um, now we're going to turn to Dr. Acha Leke. Acha, would you like to take us into the next part of the conversation, please? Sure. Uh, thanks, Teresa. And uh, let me apologize up front. I've been having some network problems, so hopefully um, uh, it won't cut off as I, I present. We can put up some slides. I'm just building on what uh, Vera and John are doing. Again, thanks. Great job to both of them for what they're doing for the continent. The continent owes both of you. Uh, a big thanks. Um, just wanted to give you a few slides and I think it builds very much on what they're saying. On the first page you'll see, as we know, and I'll go quickly through some of these, right? The continent is going to go through its first recession in 25 years, unfortunately, right? The World Bank has said that, EC has also come out and said it, our analysis show, show the same. A lot of it is due to um, the three crises we're facing. We're facing a global pandemic crisis, we're facing an Africa pandemic, and we also have an oil crisis in many of Sorry, so I was saying on the next page, I'll just go quickly. We project that about a third of all jobs on both um, uh, private, both the formal jobs and informal jobs, as you see on the next page, are, are going to be lost, unfortunately, right, or at risk, right, either, you know, we're going to probably lose about 15 million jobs completely, about 30 million jobs, uh, formal jobs will have some salaries reduced, and all of the, many of the informal jobs outside of, of subsistence agriculture is, are going to be affected, right, so it's a crisis like we've never, never seen before. Um, what's happening at the sector level? On the next page, um, we started by looking at, you know, uh, uh, I know Vera spoke about MSMEs. We've been doing some work with AUDA NEPAD and a number of partners to look at the SME sector. They're hugely affected. The 90 million SMEs in Africa, uh, you know, only 15% are registered to the, the stimulus packages that are available only go to the registered ones. It's not enough, right? 
about $20 billion has been put out for SMEs across the continent. We believe from our analysis, they need about 50 to $60 billion just to survive in the next, in the next three to four months. Half of them are in Nigeria, but they're all over, across all of our countries, right? So again, and they're the most affected because they don't have the cushions that many of the larger companies have, right? So the, the SMEs are most affected. From a sector perspective, uh, on the next page, you'll see how we've thought about it, right? There's some sectors, we looked at it based on how much the business model is, is disrupted, but also the extent of the disruption, right? And there's some sectors that are actually doing, you know, not as bad, every sector is affected. Okay, we'll see if Ache comes back, and if not, we will move on. We hope that he will come back. I think his Wi-Fi is acting up. That's why we need stronger broadband on the continent. That's why exactly. everybody that's listening to us must go and ensure <laughs> that we get better broadband, cheaper access. Within that, there's some companies that actually still win, right? So how do you become resilient? I think that's important to figure out. And it's about managing your cost. It's about pivoting your business model very quickly for the business, for the companies on the, uh, that are part of us with us today. But it's also moving boldly on, you know, which businesses you want to sell out of and which ones you acquire. So the resilience and those that win within the crisis. I'll be complimenting Acha. We are working with AfriExim Bank that has a 3 billion line for businesses that want to uh, uh, restructure, that need working capital to move into new segments and be resilient. Um, we have a weekly call, Acha is back, continue. Acha, <laughs> we're doing this two tag thing here now. The countries and the companies that have fared better are those that were more digitized going in, right? So this is a big, uh, a big theme. The focus on the urban vulnerables, a lot of the focus in the past has been on supporting rural vulnerables, the, the smallholder agriculture farmers. We think there's a renewed, the, the, the crisis has highlighted the plight of the urban vulnerable, right? Of the 500 million people who live in cities, more than 250 million live in slums, right? So how do we support them? Healthcare system, John has spoken about it. I won't get into it. Transforming the business sector manufacturing. Right? I know Vera talked about PPE, how do we manufacture more locally on the continent? You know, it's absolutely critical uh, to do. Formalization of our economies as we supported more the formal SMEs. How do you? So, so formalization of the economy, I think I was quoted a lot as saying that we were in love with the informal sector in Africa and we needed to stop that. And that's where when we came together yeah. with the large telcos, we have now 714 million people on cell phones and we can know whether they were informal or not and bring them into the formal sector because there's no way you can support informality. You must be somewhere, you must be registered somewhere for us to be able to support you. And that's again where I think the work that Acha and all of us are doing on digital identity launched by the African Union is particularly important. 500 million Africans do not have an ID. So it's very difficult to extend support to them. Thank you, Vera. And that's it for me. <laughs> Let me ask a question to all of you before we move on. Um, let me just ask the very direct question, um, especially to, to Vera and to Acha. Um, both of you made recommendations in May in very high profile reports about how to exit the lockdown in some form or fashion. Um, but when I think about where our mindset was in May, you know, these days and weeks and months are like dog days, months and weeks in, uh, in real life. Right now, during the pandemic, every day seems like a whole year in terms of the change we've seen. So May was a heck of a long time ago as we sit going into August. And back in May, there was a sense, an underlying understanding that this 
pandemic was really hitting other parts of the world hard. And Africa, you know, the question was, you know, why did Africa manage to escape? No one really knew the answer. Was it still coming? Was it the heat? Was it God knows what? And so it's one thing to formulate economic policy during a time when you think that this pandemic is elsewhere. Now that we see that the pandemic is taking hold, the numbers are growing in Africa. How does that change the recommendations that you're making? Both of you are recommending um, economic strategies to the African Union, to the various countries. How does it change now that that pandemic is feeling more real on the African continent? Um, I can go first. I think three, three ways in which it has actually held up. Um, the first one, and, and that is because when we started doing the recommendations, we started with the impact, the economic impact that the pandemic was going to have, because that's what hit us first, right? And so essentially our economies shut down. So the recommendations were beginning to say, how can we continue to function? How can we generate a value in an environment that was that difficult? You know, what, what did we need to do with our uh, 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 I think Acha showed some of the, the, the numbers where we had the airlines were shut down. 53% uh, of Africa's gross domestic product come from the services sector, which means restaurants, uh, entertainment, uh, 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 tourism. So what do you do? You start looking at, into domestic consumption. Even though you're shut down, can you begin to see how Egypt, for example, is now promoting a lot more domestic consumption? And I think that those were, that was one of the recommendations. The second recommendation that we made, and, and I think continues to hold true, and actually is quite interesting because we needed it then for communication on the virus and educating viewers on technology and standing up better technological facilities. Now we need for school reopening. So, so we needed ICT to make sure that everybody, those who had good ICT fared better, continue to fare better. But those who have good ICT will also continue to fare better as schools reopen and as they begin to think about that. So I think those recommendations. And then we also talked to the international community in terms of ensuring that there were no export bans. And we needed for them to make sure that Africa could have access to the kinds of commodities that it needed. Then it was PPEs and medical test kits. Today it's vaccines. And I think John spends a lot of his time trying to make sure that when the vaccine finally becomes available, Africa will have one. And then finally, the, the fourth big uh, conversation was just in terms of what do we do with our budgets? What do we do? And I keep going back to this question of debt deficit and budget space. A big recommendation that we all made was to say, this is not the time to ask Africa to tighten its budgets. This is a time for what we call counter-cyclical spending, both in terms of uh, development finance institutions financing our private sector on the continent and ensuring that we have open lines for our businesses, for our banks, so that SMEs can have access, but also for our states so that they could keep jobs. And I think that's where we call for $100 billion in, in stimulus packages for Africa. And we continue to work on that, actually, as the crisis comes. And we may actually need a lot more as we go forward. So my sense is that those recommendations have held and have held pretty well. If we start testing, we need to do more testing. We need to buy more, uh, purchase more commodities. We will need more foreign exchange. And so we need a lot more support from the international community for that. Teresa, if I may just add, <laughs> if I can stable, I think the, the issue we had is in Africa, we opened up our economies before we hit the peak, unlike other regions. But we had to, to various points, right? We had to open up our economies. You know, 40% of people, if they didn't work today, they wouldn't eat. 
Now, what happens, it means we're gonna have a higher peak, it's clear, and the peak will happen later, right? So the question is, how do you then manage it? So I remember, I like John's last slide around what do you need to do? So thinking through how to open, when to, which regions to close, and you're starting to see what we're happening, where, where you know, it's no longer a one size fits all. We're thinking about which regions we close, how to close it, where we have more stringent uh, measures in place, where we don't, wearing masks is critical, testing so we know where we stand is absolutely critical, right? So I think I'm not surprised as to where we are today because you know it's just a function of opening it up, which we have to do. The question is then how do we then manage it? And I think some of the John's recommendations is exactly what we should be doing. And let me ask you all one more question before we go into the audience questions. What is your view on whether Africa should be paying its external debt? This is a big question on the table. We know that there's a very high profile group that uh, is led by Ngozi and others who are focusing on this. But as you look at this question of lives versus livelihoods, do you think that Africa should be paying its external debt or using some of that funds, those funds to be able to support the social structures that we're needing back at home? Look, it's never a good thing to have to ask people whether they should pay their debt or keep uh, people alive. And I think when you ask the question, of course, the answer is you need to keep people alive. However, um, what uh, um, Africa is very different today from where Africa was 20 years ago when we had the highly indebted poor country initiative. Uh, a lot of African countries are actually doing, before the crisis, we're doing very well. Um, uh, you know, countries had used their debt to ensure that they had a lot more of their population that had access to energy, that had access to clean water, that had access to uh, a, a farm to market roads. And those countries needed and will continue to need uh, external capital to grow. Now, the question is, if you decide that you're not going to pay your debt, it means that you also foreclose access to capital into the future. And so all the hard-earned effort of the last 20 years, you lose. So there are other alternatives. And that's where we at ECA and, and African Union and the World Bank are saying, let's have a debt suspension period. So not that you don't pay your debt, but we suspend it for two years. And we say, over this next two years, let's use all the resources that you would have used to pay your interest and your, your principal on that debt, you used to take care of your populations because we believe that those 60% of African countries that were doing well in two years time, hopefully can do well again. So they don't need to go into bankruptcy just because you know there, there was a hit. And that's why we need this uh, a carryover or suspension initiative. And on the private sector side, we're working on what we're calling a liquidity facility that will ensure also that we can ensure that all African countries honor their private sector obligations while at the same time keeping markets open. We've seen Egypt has already gone back to the market. South Africa is thinking about it. We cannot as a continent grow just with grant resources. We're always going to need debt resources. So we need to keep that window open now more than ever. However, there is another tier of, uh, of the continent where things were difficult before the crisis uh, we had conflict, we had droughts, we had locusts, and those countries will probably ne not be able to stand themselves up soon enough. And there we think we should look at debt cancellation, we should look at debt restructuring, we should look at debt reprofiling. So again, the continent is over 50 countries. We can't talk about them in one unison. We need to sort of be able to split them, and there's about 30 of them that we believe will be able to sort of stand back up in two years, but need the suspension period where they have time to reassess their finances and come back better. Very good. 
Um, our first question from the audience comes from Bill Rodriguez, who is the managing director of the DRK Foundation in Botswana. Um, Bill, can you hear us? Yeah, so I just had a question for John. Good to see you, John, and thanks for your presentation. It's just about the data out of India, out of Mumbai this week, suggested that the seropositivity in the slum communities was over 50%. And I'm wondering what you think about two things. One, whether the mega cities in Africa are headed in that direction. And two, are we able to do, or planning to do any sentinel seroprevalence studies to take a look at the numbers there? <clears throat> no, t thank you, uh, Bill. And, um, we're trying to do both. We, we, <clears throat> Africa CDC, we just actually have finalized uh, engagements with, with countries uh, in the five geographic regions to do just that, to do uh, large-scale soil surveys, and especially looking at those um, vulnerable populations in, in uh, surrounding our capital cities to really address the question of exposure. I mean, what are we not seeing? I think that is um, a very important question that we will hopefully in the coming um, uh, uh, months be able to provide you an answer with that. I think I started my morning exactly by having a task team that was connecting with seven, so many countries in the region just to commit, make them commit to that uh, very important survey. Uh, in it, I don't know what the outcome will be. I mean, that's for sure. We, uh, there are many things we don't know about a pandemic than what we know about a pandemic. The, the figure of six, uh, 860,000 uh, that are infected, we take it for what it is. We also uh, know that um, there is um, less testing going on. But what is certain is that our mortality rate is, is uh, really, um, it is what it is. I think it's around 2.1%. Uh, As we speak, I have uh, four colleagues in uh, the Africa CDC who are infected. They are at home. And every day I call them and I say, how are you? They say, good, I'm fine. And I say, well, if you have problems, call me and we'll uh, come in and support you. So again, we, uh, and when I talk to Uganda, colleagues in Uganda, about 70% of those who are infected are symptomatic. So uh, again, that again offers hope that we really um, can uh, fight this virus if we stop being afraid of it and if we do not discriminate and begin to bring in uh, uh, issues of uh, discrimination. Great. Thank you very much. And um, now we are going to go to another person on the line. Uh, we're going to go to Clotilde Monguya. Clotilde, are you there? Uh, my question was, um, how did it work in Africa and in the rural area where I think quite a lot of people has um, cell phone? And then how did you use technology or how do you intend to use technology to, to carry the message and to, to mitigate uh, the, the pandemic? That's one of the questions. Thank you, Clotilde. Thank you very much. I mean, I think Vera touched on this earlier in her uh, um, remarks and talk about technology and innovation. We really have to, uh, as a continent, innovate ourselves uh, out of uh, or as part of the solution to this um, pandemic. And there are several innovations that are out there, <coughs> excuse me, out there already. Uh, you must have heard about uh, the platform, the African Medical Supply Platform, which is really uh, uh, one of the, I'll characterize it as one of the very early innovations that the continent has put out there. And um, use of technology for uh, telemedicine is something that we have to uh, uh, adopt. I mean, especially given that this pandemic 
will be with us for a while. I mean, let's, that, let's be very clear about that. I think um, uh, the tail will be long and we need to adapt ourselves in how we live with, with that. And tele telemedicine and innovation will be critical in the way we access care. I mean, especially if uh, the capital, the big cities get really affected severely. I mean, absolutely no doubt about that. So I think um, the innovation will be critical the way in the manner in which we deliver vaccines and uh, or actually rally our continent to be able to uh, be uh, uh, comfortable with the concept of what vaccines can do and to fight misinformation. So telemedicine and innovation is really going to be central in the manner in which we fight this uh, pandemic going forward. I think we already have some experiences of telemedicine on the continent. There is a young woman in Rwanda who's been doing telemedicine and I think we've tried to uh, in many conflict-affected regions of the continent, I think telemedicine had started working. Now the question is, how do we do more of it? Uh, because as uh, John always reminds us and, and the health community, yes, we are all fighting COVID, but people still get sick of regular diseases and need uh, access to normal care. And some of the numbers that we are seeing out of different countries are showing us that people are no longer getting access to regular care. And, and my sense is that we will be able to very quickly move to telemedicine platforms because they already exist in many of our countries. Again, it's not so much whether they exist or not. I think we need to work, and I want to go back to this policy point, we need to work with our governments to just ensure that the cost does not become too onerous, particularly for those that have already lost their jobs and have their incomes uh, diminishing. So the, the telemedicine platforms in Senegal, that the, the innovators on our continent, uh, are doing that all over the place in Morocco, but it's the cost now that we have to worry about and, and out-of-pocket health costs on the continent are already quite high. Thank you so much. Um, let's move, I think, um, Peter. So calling in from Cape Town, South Africa. Great. What is your um, company, please? Uh, I work for the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. Thank you, Peter. Please ask your question. Absolutely. So I'd very much like to uh, direct this question to doctors Songwen and Leke just to weave together a couple of the comments that they made during their presentations to hear what your thoughts are on the on the practical challenges overcoming the practical challenges of providing access to the internet as one of those needs of urban communities that we face in a number of the of the African cities. I mean, I'm happy to, to start and then Vera um... And I think, I think uh, Ralph Simonson also have a question related to that more in the, in the rural areas, right? So, you know, there's a huge, you know, as we say, it's funny because on, on one hand, you, we have 700 million people who have access to cell phones of which, you know, 300 million are smartphones. On the other hand, like Vera said, there's a huge gap in terms of internet accessibility, both in urban centers, especially in the, in the you know, in the slums, and even in places like where I live, and also in rural areas, right? So we think there are a number of things. One is, investments how do you get a lot more investment going in there typically more from the private sector and there are a lot of new innovations cheaper ways to really get internet access much broader coverage right so i think a lot of the folks in the past has been relying on the telcos relying on some of the equipment providers i think there's some thinking that we should do around what are some of the innovative ways to actually get a much much wider uh, coverage across the region. so that's one the second is in devices right you then need people to access it to have the devices and how do you you know, get much cheaper devices. I was on a call right before this one with some more colleagues in India and seeing that the kind of devices that they're working with there and that they're producing there. We know that some players in Africa are starting to produce devices in Africa. How can we get much, much cheaper devices into the hands 
of uh, of, uh, of, um, of of you know of our brothers and sisters. And the third is then cost, right? What is the cost of data, right? And again, that, that's where we have to figure out how can both the government come and play a role, how can the, the telco operators come, and how can we reduce the cost of, of data? So I think you need to work across all three areas to really democratize democratize uh, access to uh, to the internet. Look, um, during this COVID crisis, uh, uh, Jeff Bezos has become the richest man on, uh, on earth. And I think his net worth now is what, 15 billion or something. And Google is one point something trillion dollars of a company. So clearly for the private sector, we know that telecommunication is a winner. For our government, we know it's a winner because 18.4% is tax revenue to GDP on the continent. Actually, interestingly enough, in the last two weeks, three countries have started taxing technology because that's the only place where they can get revenue now because everything else has stopped. And so my sense is uh, if we could even just allow for better investment, there has been the sense that, you know, uh, the, the telco companies and countries have to be the monopolies, the state has to run them. But we've seen that in countries where you have three, four, there is more competition and the state makes a lot more resources. So I think one of the things we need to do is deregulate, including in South Africa, by the way. We need to deregulate the sector so that actually we can hear you more often and more frequently. The second thing that we need to do is, as Acha said, there's new technology out there that, you know, I think before we, there was the whole conversation about laying new cables, but Africa is about to go into this huge, probably the fastest railroad connectivity projects across the continent. And with that, we can lay cables if we need to lay them. But also there are balloons. And I think uh, uh, a couple of countries on the continent are beginning to look at how, depending on population density, you can actually have balloons that deploy, that you can deploy to allow for better connectivity. And this is being tried in a number of countries on the continent. It's actually profitable for the private sector. You don't even need uh, a public sector guarantees or, uh, I mean, the investments are there and we know that uh, the rate of return on IT investments on the continent is quite high. So the biggest bottleneck today we have is regulation. Once we can, I think, unpack that. Because when you think about it, a lot of African co uh, 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 consumers have three phones. So they're, they're essentially, that's the tax they're paying for three phones, the fact that they don't have, you know, we call it mobile phones, but you can only use it when you're e-mobile because this is one place where you can get Wi-Fi. We need to be able to change that. And I think we can do it quite fast. Talking about production, of course, we have Mara phones on the continent now that is producing phones at $100 or $50 they're planning to go to. So there is production happening on the continent. And we believe that with more production on the continent, we can also start doing more Android phones that will work for everybody. Are you there, Adiba? Can you hear us? Well, thank you uh, to all the panelists. Very interesting discussion and, and great to hear, uh, as you mentioned, Teresa, the, some of the positives that have come out of um, the crisis. Um, one of the concerns, uh, and it, this is directed mainly to Dr. John, but happy for other panelists, uh, the others to comment as well. One of the concerns is when you look at the developed markets, you look here at the US and, and in some of the European countries, as they were hitting the peak, and it's still happening in certain states here in the US, the, um, the hospital system, ICU beds, hospitals were being, uh, or at risk of being completely overwhelmed. Um, now the public, the healthcare infrastructure and ICU beds is really very limited in, in many African countries. So 
just want to understand the degree of concern there is on how if Africa, many African countries are yet to reach the peak, how will the hospital system cope? Um, and, and how can you, you know, how do you reassure folk that people, um, the systems will be able to cope? This is a very important question and it relates to my comments when I said uh, that the, the number, we, we, we need to understand a pandemic. I mean, in HIV AIDS, we used to say, no, we are the epidemic. And for uh, this, uh, uh, the COVID-19, we need to know a pandemic so that we, we know exactly wh what to do and how to prepare our hospital system. Then. What do I mean by that? We need to know the, the number of people on the continent that are actually infected and are asymptomatic. So that would allow us to actually begin to prepare our hospital system with respect to where if 80% or 70 to 80% are symptomatic, then you can take care of them at home. They stay home, uh, stay warm, drink uh, hot water, just uh, and chill and let your immune system fight it and you create herd immunity. Then there will be probably be another 15% uh, <clears throat> that will require that you they talk to a doctor and and that is where the telemedicine comes in, where you maybe we need to be able to look at our hospital systems with respect to what can you do from a distance? How, how can you consult your, your hospital from a distance? Then hopefully <clears throat> that will leave us with a small percentage of people that actually require that they go to a hospital and, and be hospitalized and then go into the oxygen. And uh, we just don't know because we're still very early in a, <clears throat> in a pandemic and uh, the way we, we are seeing it, yes, people are rushing into these uh, treatment centers where they stay there for a week or two and then they are discharged. I mean, and, and that is a good thing. That means that we can set up triage centers that will take care of such cases without overwhelming our system. But as the numbers increase, as in South Africa, we need to be very, very uh, be prepared for such scenarios that a large number of patients will be feeling sick. They need to come to the hospital and not necessarily to get oxygen or ventilators, but to just be taken care of. And we need to treat them humanly possible by creating facilities that will, will at least hold them, treat them, triage them, and see those who actually require uh, intensive care. So I think uh, we see early on with respect to the burden uh, in, on the hospital system, but we'll get there. So we need to prepare ahead of time. I'm going to read another question that has come in in writing and the um, speaker for this question has asked me to read it. This is from Leroy Wilson, who is a very loyal participant in these sessions. Um, he's been in all of them. He is an American and he's the president of Wilson Jacobson PC. And his question is that many young African entrepreneurs are being innovative in responding to the pandemic and creating inventions um, that are quite at the cutting edge in order to um, address COVID-19 in, um, in Africa. And his question is, how are the IP laws um, being addressed to make sure that these people are able to maintain um, the ownership of their, of their products? And I guess this is part of the um, African Free Trade Agreement, some of the macro issues that Vera is addressing. So Vera, can we put that over to you? No, that's, uh, thank you very much, Leroy. That's a, a very good question. Uh, before the pandemic, we had been talking about 
intellectual property rights and the need to protect them. But I think we see it everywhere in the world, right? The United States is trying to protect its property rights. The UK, uh, the European Union has created uh, an agency. What we are doing at the, the ECA and, and working very closely with the Trade Commissioner, actually, this is one of the issues that we will be discussing uh, at the technical level and eventually at the heads of states level, we hope, at, in early January, is essentially to see, we've done two things. First of all, uh, the cost of uh, registering intellectual property or patents on the continent is quite high. I take an example in a place like Kenya, it's about $3,000. So if you're a young innovator, you've spent all the resources you have buying whatever you need, it is you need to do your first prototype. You don't have $3,000 to go and sort of register uh, your innovation. So what we're trying to do is see whether we can create a fund that will ensure that you know we can protect those innovations and you register it there. And eventually, if you become the next unicorn, then you can buy every other innovation in that fund. But we are working with the two intellectual property rights uh, organizations on the continent, one in French-speaking uh, Africa and one in English-speaking Africa, we to see whether we can come together, look at what the United States is doing, look at what Europe is doing. Europe has done something similar, actually. They have mutualized intellectual property registration at the center and reduced their cost. So this is something that we need to ensure that we do. Otherwise, you know, we have, you know, all the firms from Silicon Valley coming to Africa, doing competitions. We're very proud that we win them, but they take our ideas and the next morning it's a billion dollar IPO and the kid who, who had the idea is still sitting here looking for a job and doesn't know where to go. So we must, again, reduce the cost of registering uh, intellectual property rights and see whether we can mutualize it. And this is really part of the discussions over the next six months as the second part of the African Continental Free Trade Area Agreement. I must say that the, we, the, the continent has been quite forward looking because we have two issues that we will be discussing which are critical for COVID. One of them is e-commerce legislation and how Africa comes together around e-commerce. And the second is intellectual property rights, competition policy and industrialization are the other two. But I think if you bring these things together, you can begin to see how we have a blueprint for taking off and re uh, rebounding our economies, uh, even uh, as we fight the COVID crisis. And if I may, Teresa, just add one thing, I mean, maybe to bear to what I think you guys should look for. In addition to IP, I think just more, more homogeneity in regulations across the continent. So, because part of the challenge our entrepreneurs have is just scaling, right? And so if you have to register, forget IP, you have to register, you know, your proper, your invention here, you have to register your new business. That's why we want one registration across the continent. Yeah. Beyond IP, I'm with you. Awesome. Exactly. Let me ask a question that's been written in. Um, this is one we got uh, beforehand, and if we see it again on the live Q&A. Uh, this is coming from Jason George. Uh, we want to talk about corruption, um, a tough thing. And I know that there's been some media around your country, um, Cameroon, and how government has been handling um, transparency and accountability with respect to funds that are designated for the purposes of COVID. Um, let me put it out there to anyone who wants to answer that, that tough question. Absolutely. Let me let me go first so that I can mess up and direct uh, and uh, check and fix it. I think that there's um, with each time there's uh, a pandemic or an outbreak, uh, we've seen that with HIV and all that. I mean, there's always a tendency for people not to behave properly. That that I means it's a human behavior thing and it's not necessarily attached to 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 a country. I think we. I've been asked this question several times, and my answer is, is straightforward, that 
we should all condemn such behavior seriously because otherwise everything else that Achad and Vera have mentioned here about uh, the economic uh, um, response and taking up will be on our mind. I mean, that is very, very clear. I think this is serious. Uh, this is the greatest challenge that uh, we as a continent will face uh, going forward for the last maybe since independence. That's just to put it short. So um, if uh, people cut corners and bad behaviors are not condemned and penalized, I think we are in for, for extremely difficult times. So I've not seen the, um, the case in Cameroon in particular, so it's very difficult to comment with specifics, but across the board, we should really be vigilant and make sure that we that this, uh, uh, those behaviors are completely um, not uh, allowed. Let me, let me come in there, um, because ECA has been working a lot on the whole uh, um, illicit financial flows with the Tabumbeki report, and so, Corruption and, uh, is a big issue that we have been sort of trying to uh, struggle with. I think three things. I have not also seen the, 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 the Cameroon case, so I, wouldn't, I, I don't know what's uh, uh, the particular issue there. But I think we have three things that we need to do. One, we are, as a global community, asking other taxpayers in other parts of the world to you know, provide additional resources to the continent. Uh, in a time when there is a global pandemic and a global recession, so nobody has additional resources. So the last thing that I think we should tolerate uh, 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 is to say that those resources are going to be poorly spent. The second thing is that we have our communities that are crippled, our kids that are out of school, our mothers that do not have access to hospitals. So it is criminal that we encourage any kind of corruption or poor governance. So I, I don't think that there is a debate around that. I think it's clear that it should not happen. Now, I think we need leadership. We've just seen fantastic leadership coming out of South Africa very recently on this issue of governance. So again, when we talk about it, I think we do need to say and celebrate the places where we have very good leadership. There's a strong civil society community in South Africa that's doing a lot of work. Nigeria is beginning to do some work in at the state level in some states. I think uh, in Kenya, they've launched a program called Huduma Halisi, which is essentially transparency on the use of resources. I remember uh, uh, somebody out of Kenya saying, how can you ask me to wash my hands when I don't have clean water and I don't have a dollar to buy a mask and I need to know where those resources are going to. So we should use, I think, this COVID pandemic in those countries where there was not better transparency and better governance to be able to open up these issues and bring them to the fore because our populations will not tolerate it and clearly those who are giving us the resources will not tolerate it. And hence this debt crisis, when we talk about debt is about the use of resources. So we must be able to sort of bring these things together and tie those ends. Acha, you want to jump in this one? I mean, you know, I, I think very, very along with what Vera and Johnson, my whole perspective is people are always going to try to take advantage of a situation. So, you know, so they will, we all agree we shouldn't, but people are going to take advantage of it. So the question is, how do you deal with them? And I'd back to Vera's point, the president of South Africa made a very strong statement, you know, in his, in his last speech about this. So I think it's leadership to deal with it. But to Vera's point, I think then civil society have, really has to step up, right? How do people raise these issues as they come up? People are going to do it. Somebody has to then raise the issue so people know about it. And then we need the leaders to deal with it, right? But I think, you know, just thinking people are not going to take advantage of the situation. It's not going to happen. People will take advantage. We need leadership and we need civil society. Well, you've been very generous with your time. The three of you have a fantastic dynamic. I'm going to make a request and have you recorded today. Um, you know, I think we know that this pandemic is not going away anytime soon. 
um, and the Cameroonian trio seems to have a, a really wonderful dynamic for addressing it from a public health perspective from John and the back and forth on the economics issues between Vera and Acha is great. And so I'm going to ask you right now, you know, you wrote your reports in May, we're asking you to update as we go into August. Um, let's look ahead to November. And um, I'm going to ask already if you three of you might join us again in November for what I think will be a very important update at that moment in time. So I hope you will come back with us. Um, we are going to call it short here because uh, we've gone over, which is something we never do, but we um, felt compelled to do so just because of the dynamic nature of the conversation today. I think that we have been well served uh, through hearing these conversation among these three fantastic speakers today. Um, I'd like to remind you of the new course that's being launched by two of our Harvard Business School colleagues, Professors Tarun Khanna and Carolyn Elkins of Harvard Business School. Um, this course you can find out about on our site, virtualconferenceafrica.com. We think that um, it provides a great opportunity to look at the innovation that we're talking about today. Maybe someone can figure out a new way to handle um, the connectivity issues that we've been talking about. This course is focused on looking at big infrastructural issues. And so we're very excited about that course and hope that some of you will take it. And we mentioned that you will get a certificate from Harvard University for, for taking that course. Um, I'd like to go on and thank our sponsors. In particular, again, we want to thank Standard Bank. We want to thank our silver sponsors, FSDH, particularly Tosa Obama, um, Main One, Funkio Peke, PDB. We want to thank Admasu Tedese. Um, at Covington, we thank Eric Holder, and we thank um, Whitney Schneiderman, and we thank MasterCard. Um, we'd like to thank Mark Elliott, and we would like to thank um, Birgit for, for being our sponsors and making this series possible. Um, going forward, um, let me, I'm sorry, I also have a few more people to thank who are media sponsors. We thank you for getting the word out. Again, we've had a great audience here today. We thank you for being with us. Um, going forward, we are very excited that we have a number of uh, new sessions coming um, forward. We have a tremendous pipeline of more fantastic speakers and dynamic topics. We're going to take a couple of weeks off to reinvent our, um, our program and we will be back. Keep your eye open. Um, but I think that our Cameroonian um, panelists today will be happy to hear this, that we were so inspired by the strong interest we got from Cameroon today and simultaneous translation that we are going to be introducing simultaneous translation going forward. And so we are working on the details. We did a beta test yesterday and it went well. And um, going forward for some of our sessions, we know that many of your comrades wanted to hear from you in French today, and we will be offering that um, as we go forward. So please um, keep your eyes peeled on email where we will be announcing the future sessions. We will be taking a couple of weeks off, but we'll be back in August with another lineup as we continue to address this very important humanitarian and, humanitarian and economic crisis and bring to you Africa's top thought leaders to address the most challenging questions of our day. John, Acha, Vera, thank you so much for being with us and we're going to look forward to having you back again. We must do that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Bye -bye. Thank you very much. Thank you. Stay safe. Absolutely. Thanks everybody.